Hi, I'm Conan Tobias, Editor-in-Chief and Publisher of Tattle Creek Magazine. I am here, as we often are in the summer, in the backyard of the Jet Fuel Coffee Shop in Toronto uh, to launch Tattle Creek Summer Issue. This is it right here. It's uh, in mailboxes, if not already, very shortly, and on newsstands soon. Uh, we, uh, we usually launch our summer issue here. Things are a little different this year. Uh, we usually have a large group of people. Uh, here to celebrate with us. There's usually a barbecue over in the corner uh, and uh, Steam Whistle is usually here uh, with a couple kegs of beer for everybody. Uh, that is not the case this year. Uh, there are uh, there are four of us, uh, two people that are going to read. we got Chris Chambers over there and Andrew Daly over here, uh, six feet apart from each other. And uh, Derek Winshears is uh, offered to come and work the camera so I didn't have to. Um, there, uh, we've got some ground beef from the St. Jamestown Butcher across the street that we're going to uh, take home and fry up later. And we've got a six-pack of Steam Whistle uh, for the four of us that we'll, we'll probably fight over the last two later. Uh, but if Tattle Creek doesn't launch at the jet fuel in the summer, then the pandemic has won. So we have come here to entertain you today. And along with Chris and Andrew, uh, we've got uh, a couple other readers standing by uh, out in BC, Emily Pulweary and Sharon Miki-Chan. And uh, Lindsay Zervogel uh, is uh, waiting in her backyard on the other side of town uh, to check in with us as well. So uh, I know uh, you're probably not at all sick of uh, online launch parties yet, so we've got one more for you. Um, crack open your own six-pack or yet another bottle of wine and uh, sit back and enjoy the entertainment. Uh, we'll start uh, going out to Vancouver uh, with uh, Sharon Mickey Chan. Um, Sharon is a copywriter and editor living in Vancouver who has appeared uh, in numerous publications uh, to which she can now add Tattle Creek. This is her, her Tattle Creek debut this issue. Uh, so we, she, she's going to do a little reading for us from her balcony, I think. Uh, so let's check in with her now. Hi, Sharon. Hey, everyone. My name is Sharon Miki Chan, and I'm super excited to join you all from Vancouver. Um, today, I'm going to be reading an abridged short story called This Is Fine. It is about an adult newspaper delivery person who's having a bit of a weird night. Okay. Nothing is where it's supposed to be these days, and it is pissing May off. She, for example, isn't warm in bed beside the person she loves in the middle of the night. Oh, no. Instead, she's shivering in the driver's seat of her 98 Geo Tracker in the Save on Foods parking lot, waiting for the morning's issues to arrive. Forced courage and inky newsprint are May's new routine. Every morning for the past 47 mornings, she's been here, but it's not really where she belongs. May knows that Katie isn't really where she belongs lately, either. May found the messages by accident a month ago, but once she saw them, she couldn't not see them. She scrolled all the way back to the beginning, scrolled so far and through so many messages that her thumb cramped. It started with innocent produce emojis, small talk, work chat, forwarded memes, flirty produce emojis, inside jokes, selfies, sexy selfies. Then, and most painfully, the messages turned to routine. You eat yet, and simply, horrifically, smiley face emoji. Communications of comfort, convenience, check-ins. May had exhumed the mundane chat of a relationship, just not the relationship that Katie was supposed to be in. Now, May flips the keys in the ignition, waiting for the dashboard light to pop on with the time. It's 2.03 a.m. She has till 2.07 before she has to get out of the car's cocoon, and she's going to savor every minute she has. 
She breathes fast, but sips the store-brand Diet Cola slowly through a chewed-up straw. She closes her eyes as the familiar tingle of aspartame fizzles over her taste buds. You're okay. This is fine. May whispers her mantra under her breath. This is fine. Another delivery guy, Jason, bangs on her passenger door window. May freezes, feels the acetone chill of anxiety simmer through her. He grins at her and rolls his wrist, gesturing for her to turn down the glass. She smiles awkwardly, hoping he'll go away. A lot of the time, this kind of guy just wants her to smile for him, to feel like he's the hero that turned her mood around, to be the guy that put a pop of prettiness on her resting visage of scowl. She smiles, but he keeps rolling his wrists like he's a flamenco dancer. Hi, May says, conscious of her heart beating faster as she leans over and cranks the window. Morning, how you doing, he asks. May averts her eyes. Jason keeps smiling stupidly at her, slurping his coffee. The only thing May hates more than talking to other people is knowing that people are waiting for her to talk. May and Jason sit in silence for a moment, and she wonders what he is getting out of this interaction. Luckily, the forced morning Tet a terrible is clipped by the exhaust-filled arrival of the newspaper Big Rig. Brimming with the confidence of a man whose sweat-stained t-shirt wasn't sullied by Cheetos residue, Jason struts off towards the truck with a little wave, leaving May to mourn the loss of her last minutes of nothingness before she trudges after him to pick up her own issues. Here's May's dirty little secret. For the past three weeks, she's been an adult newspaper delivery person. It's a secret to anyone who might notice or care, which could really only be Katie, who is yet to notice or care. Her official day job is still Katie's weird stay-at-home girlfriend, but May needs to start making her own money again. It's fine though, only 200 or so papers a morning, and she doesn't have to see or talk to many people. What she doesn't enjoy about the job, the morning's so early, there's still last night, paper cuts, she makes up for in the lack of human interaction required to get paid. Every encounter is a confrontation to May these days. What people used to laugh off as shyness now makes it nearly impossible for her to get through any interaction unscathed. A trip to the grocery store is now a maze of nutritional humiliation. Running into an old friend on the bus means she's going to have to get off and walk an extra hour to reach her destination. Forget about ordering anything at a restaurant without tears of frustration and fear raining on the tablecloth. Going to her old work was the worst, though. Casual cases of the Mondays it escalated to sweaty palms when her boss asked her a question. Grew to bringing her laptop into the bathroom stall for hours to avoid the lingering voicemails haunting her cubicle. Intensified to stress vomiting in the parking lot, driving away, and never going back. Which sucked, because work used to be something that May loved. She had, after all, met Katie at work. Back then, May was an accountant. She'd always liked the solidity of numbers. Numbers don't have feelings, and spreadsheets never think you are a mess. She was lucky to get a job straight out of school, and luckier still to start the same day as Katie. From the moment they met, May could be herself with Katie. Katie, with her cerulean blue highlights hiding under a crown of black curls, Katie, who still drove three hours to see her childhood dentist 
and spent thousands of dollars keeping a 20-year-old cat on life support. Katie, who wasn't afraid of speaking in a meeting or ordering a latte, who took care of everything and kept May around as a matter of principle, even years after they'd stopped holding hands. By 2.23, May's driven to the street behind her route to sort her pap papers by flashlight in the trunk. A raccoon shuffles in the bushes, startling her. She swears under her breath. Distractions mess with her system. She spreads out each building's color-coded cue card on the bumper and marks delivery changes, uh, transcribing cancellations and customer details from the morning's crumpled printout. She makes a neat stack for each building and double-checks her numbers. She's paranoid someone will complain, that her natural tendency towards failure will seep through the night into the morning. You're okay. May takes a moment to breathe and look at the stars before she starts. She likes this time in the morning, when the sun won't rise for hours, but the sky brims with brightness that's just out of reach. It reminds her of the blanket fort she'd built as a child, so dark the world was transformed, though pinpricks of light seeped in through thin threads, only barely denying her the sanctuary of feeling hidden. This is fine, May tells herself once more for good measure. On the top floor of her last building of the morning, May places newspapers at the doormats. She nudges the rounded corners of each issue back and forth, making sure the headlines run parallel with the frame, a step that May can't help but take pride in. She believes in the power of presentation. Excuse me? A door creaks gently and a soft voice emerges behind May. I, I need some help. May turns. She notices the open doorway first. Creeping around so early in the morning, she's never glimpsed into any of the suites she delivers to, so her first instinct is to voyeur into a stranger's world. Guilty, she averts her eyes and sees her. Crumpled at the base of the open doorway, someone ebbs from the shadows in a way that May can't quite process at first. Then she sees the blood. The woman is all gnarled limbs and frizzed hair and pale pink nightgown, but when she looks up, May recognizes a familiar fear in her eyes. Um, I'm sorry, but I fell, the woman whispers, her eyes lowered, struggling to get the words out. I was getting a glass of water and I heard you in the hallway. The woman raises a shaking hand to her own face, awkwardly wiping a mix of blood and tears. You are bleeding, May says, then immediately regrets stating the obvious. Oh, sorry, the woman says, shifting in the doorway. May nods her understanding and stands self-consciously over the woman. May isn't good at action. Could you call an ambulance, the woman finally says, please? Sure, May winces, embarrassed that this poor woman is forced to help May be helpful, but also because she hates speaking on the phone. Pausing for just a moment, May dials 911. She stands and the woman sits in the hallway quietly, neither looks at each other. I, I always listen for you delivering. Keeps me company, the woman says eventually. The loneliness is palpable in her voice and the subsequent silence fills the air between them with a heavy musk. Maybe I should go get a towel for the cut, May says, hoping to escape the awkwardness. There's a linen closet, the woman says. May skulks through the apartment in search of something useful. The decor inside is clean enough but bare. A crystal bowl filled with plastic wrapped strawberry candies, a bookshelf with a few tattered novels, well-dusted fragments of a quiet life lived alone. May grabs a towel and goes back to the woman. 
I'm so glad you're here, the woman says softly as May returns. May leans over the woman and says what she thinks Katie would say. You're okay, you're gonna be fine. When the paramedics arrive, May leaves the towel and her newspapers. She walks down the hall away from this world, slipping away from her future. When May gets home at 5.47, she takes off her clothes and puts them in the kitchen garbage can, covering them with food scraps. She knows that her delivery days are over. Her will to leave and set Katie free floats into just another failed idea. She's quit so many things that she knows the disappointment she feels will soon turn to anger, but then to relief. At six, Katie's alarm goes off. May watches while she rolls over carefully, turns off the alarm, and smiling, checks her phone for messages. Morning, May says. Oh, you're up so early, Katie says, glancing at May, then back at her phone. Are you going somewhere? No, May says. I'm okay here with you. She reaches over so that her ink-stained fingertips hover over Katie heart, Katie's heart. This is fine. May says it, and she means it. It's the only thing she knows for sure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Sharon. That was great. Um, let's just keep on rolling. We're going to go six feet over here. Maybe not quite six feet. I should probably be standing a little further away. But we'll, but we'll go over to uh, Andrew Daly. Andrew is a Tattle Creek veteran. He's been with us since our very first issue. He's the magazine's former associate editor. He's the author of two novels, uh, Tell Your Sister and Resort. And he's got... I think a piece from a novel that he, I think is done, but he's probably still tweaking it a little bit, if I know Andrew. And I'm not sure what he's going to read. He said maybe some COVID poems, but I'm not entirely sure if that's going to be the case or not. You so, don't want to hear those. Andrew Daly. Thank you, Conan. Thanks for, uh, to my fellow readers. I'm, uh, I'm going to read another selection um, from the novel I'm working on. It comes just after the, uh, the piece that's in the magazine, just after Tim's house guest Sabine has left. The day after Sabine vanished, Tim set out to inventory his stock of weed. This wasn't anything he'd done before, but in searching for a prize sativa called Tsunami, he'd found other bags of weed stashed in his living room, behind a stack of Charlie Parker LPs or under a dusty aloe plant, save for a rainy day, perhaps, or simply forgotten. Although he'd already smoked his morning bowl, he had a taste of an indica called Purple Phase. Hints of pine and citrus, spacey but mellow, and definitely motivational because he realized there could be a lot more weed hidden away in an apartment he'd occupied for 16 years. A gap under the bathroom vanity yielded a quarter-ounce bag, as did a coffee can in the fridge. A loose floorboard hid some lumps of hash. Soon ounces of weed, thousands of dollars worth, sat atop his coffee table. He could never smoke that much. Well, not quickly. Yet since he hadn't sold any weed in a year, and anyone over 19 could buy it in retail outlets, he couldn't see how he'd monetize it. Anyway, he was now far more interested in the battered Samsung phone he'd found in an old sneaker in the hallway closet. Its screen image showed a selfie of Sabine had taken of herself with the blonde kid he remembered as her boyfriend. But it wasn't Sabine's phone. She had an iPhone in a black case, which rarely left her hand, so presumably it was the boyfriend's? Tim brought it to the living room and set it on the coffee table beside the weed. He didn't remember the boyfriend visiting, though he could have when Tim was at work. Sabine must have left it there, but why? Now he was even more concerned about her. He missed her, too, and the conversation she'd provided. Too bad he'd forgotten to get her phone number. He was thinking he could ask someone to look her up on Facebook when his own phone rang. 
It was the owner of the bar Tim managed, a man named Bendel, with an exciting opportunity to, to discuss. Tim needed to meet him in front of Finch West Station, subway station in an hour. It was an order, not a request. Tim stood fiddling with the belt of his dressing gown. It was barely noon. He hadn't eaten or showered, and that subway station sounded distantly suburban. If it were anyone else calling, he'd have said no, but he foolishly relied on Bendel for both his job and his home, and so he had to go. Twenty minutes later, winded from hurrying, he boarded a streetcar heading north out of Chinatown. Without his earbuds, he sadly realized, just as the purple phase he'd sampled revealed a creeping paranoiac quality that heightened his fears over what Bendel had in mind for him. Nothing legal. Nothing he should get involved with. And why this recent interest in him? Phone calls, surprise visits to the bar. They hadn't interacted this much in years. Finch West Station looked new, its foyer constructed of pastel-colored glass panels that softened the raw winter light. Tim waited on a bench until he spotted Bendel's boxy old Mercedes pull up outside. You'd never guess the boss was wealthy, which was likely the idea. Bendel wore aviator sunglasses and had ditched his suit for a cable-knit sweater under a shearling coat. Tim climbed into the passenger seat. Let's go, Bendel said. What I will show you, you will shit your pants. Wow, okay, Tim said. I'll try not to. They drove along a wide street of car dealerships, strip malls, and squat brown apartment buildings. Tim might be in an entirely different city. Listen up, Bendel said. When I came to the market, it was all about the neighborhood and the family interests there, the traditions. But the market is changing. The city is changing. So I'm moving into different areas. I want to show some of them to you. Occasionally, Bendel's accent had a mild English inflection, like he'd learned the language or been educated there. This didn't fit with any of the various accounts of his origins he'd provided over the years. Good to know, Tim said. It takes courage to change. Courage? This isn't courage. This is me getting out of Chinatown. So, Tim, maybe you'd like to help me. It's different work. I want to know if you can do it. Although the purple phase had relaxed its hold on him, Tim still feared the worst. He was no thug, and his Buddhism prohibited any form of violence. I'm game, so long as it's not physical. You know what I mean? I'm not much of a fighter. Bendel's eyes were unreadable behind his mirrored shades. No, you're not, he said. One of Bendel's origin stories involved dropping out of a university engineering program in Moscow to flee to the West as the Soviet Union collapsed. It had sounded more credible than his earlier claim to have been part of the Soviet war in Afghanistan and to have escaped it for India and then Thailand. Tim had done the math. It was possible Bendel had gone to war, though he would have been very young. At the moment, however, this story seemed more probable. I'll take that as a compliment, Tim said. The Mercedes reached a red brick industrial warehouse on a long street of similar buildings. Tim instantly assumed this was one of Bendel's brothels. The location fit, suburban, secluded, nondescript, or a meth lab. He wanted no part of either and anticipated a tough conversation. Bendel hated hearing no. Right away, he detected a deep humming sound emanating from, from within the warehouse. Beyond an unmarked door was an office area that smelled heavily of marijuana. Not the smoke of burned weed, but the skunkiness of the cannabis plant. A large man with Slavic features and a bright orange shell suit looked up from a laptop as they passed. Tim had seen him before. At the bar? There was no time to wonder as he trailed Bendel down a darkened hallway into a warehouse full of marijuana plants. He staggered to a stop. Row upon row of plants stretched to the distant wall. It was an emerald cathedral, the kind he'd only ever seen in photos. Bendel turned to him, a rare smile cracking his lined face. Look at you. See? I told you you'd like it. The space was longer than it was wide. Newer, younger seedlings were on the left, and the plants rose in a shaggy green terrace as they, as they got taller and more mature. 
The humming sound came from the HEPA filters that scrubbed the air and muted the beautiful aroma he found so irresistibly buoyant. Tim swooned. This is all yours? Me and my partners. Normally I don't give a shit about weed. It's too fucking messy to deal with, but there's good money in it these days. Benda ushered him into what must be the drying room. Plants hung upside down on lines like laundry. In an adjacent room, an older woman wearing latex gloves was wearing buds before dropping them into pill bottles. The THC crystals on them glittered like the stars of a distant green galaxy. Bendel offered him a selection. Please, you are the specialist. Tim brought a bud to his nose. The aroma was sweetly redolent of blueberries, but it lacked the sponginess that would have got him really excited. Nice. A classic indica? Blueberry blush, the woman said. She had an Eastern European accent. It's a hybrid, very potent. Tim smelled it again and screwed up his courage. Can I be honest, he said to Bendel. Please, Bendel said. It's too dry, like it hung too long. I'm no expert, but you've got to get this stuff trimmed and packaged within a day or so. You need some humidifiers in here, especially in winter. The woman spoke to Bendel in Russian, presumably in her own defense. Bendel answered harshly, then put his arm around Tim's shoulder to lead him back to the greenhouse. The truth, Bendel said, this is why I brought you here today. What would you say, Tim, if I asked if you wanted to become the manager here? The answer, of course, was no. Not a chance. Never. Tim had no experience in the necessary, in, in the necessary science. That Bendel was asking him was proof the greenhouse was illegal. Tim admired the plant nearest him and pulled a feathery purple bud to his nose to smell it. I'd love to, he said. Thank you all for listening. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, let's go back out to BC. Um, Emily Polweary is a longtime friend of the magazine. We love her here. Uh, we were so sad when she moved uh, out west a few years ago. She's not actually in Vancouver. She'll tell you where she is. Uh, Emily's the author of uh, books of poetry, of fiction, of YA fiction, and she does many, many other things. Um, she's teaching out there now, but uh, we're very happy to have her with us today. Uh, Emily. Hi, Tattle Creek <laughs> readers and launch goers, and hi, Conan. I'm here in Clackwood Sound uh, in the rainforest. This is not a green screen behind me. This is actually temperate rainforest um, on the far west coast of Vancouver Island near a town called Euclulet. And I'm going to do my reading or attempt to here. Um, so please know I will be getting mosquito bites uh, as a result of standing here. So I am suffering for your sake, for the sake of art. Um, it's about as far as I can get from where I grew up in Toronto, uh, where most of the contents of the issue and the magazine come from. So I suppose a lot of my writing these days, I'm living out here now, a lot of my writing these days is actually <laughs> impacted by the, um, the natural world and my surrounding in a way that I didn't really realize uh, until I went and looked back at the poetry I'm writing these days. It's the beginning of a collection I've been calling Stress Lines. And the first poems will hopefully not stress you out, <laughs> but they are um, isolation poems. Isolation poem number two. Two double coffees, kept secret from my lover, who stops at one? I want more. Always. 
nothing helps me face the world outside my apartment. Isolation poem number three. A man passes by too close on a tree-lined trail. I shrink away. Remember the way his lanky body moved for hours. Wonder if he exhaled or there was a breeze. Isolation poem number four. Some anxiety is transmitted to the dog. This makes him work all day, hurting shadows, ignoring his food, avoiding my kisses. He won't let me brush his mats, sleeps with his eyes half open. Isolation poem number six. Cannot seem to fully exhale anymore. Only inhale, inhale deeper. Ocean wind, cool spring, bird song, laundry detergent, barbecue, cigarette smoke. So loud, the fear. So quiet, muted sounds of a city in hiding. Isolation poem number eight. If you are already sick when the virus comes, save your breath, do not speak, count your blessings, do not alter the course of your isolated life, do not spread your anxiety to others or take medication to numb the pain you endure. Do not play with a dog to distract. Do not work yourself to death. Do not lie in the sunshine on the deck or thank hell that you can afford your own tiny place. Do not erect a tent in the living room and hole up there eating chips. Do not have chocolate for breakfast or make a third coffee or take your temperature again. Do not touch your face, pick your nose, read the news or email or even glance at your lover's phone. Do not kiss your lover goodnight, good morning, or cry in the bathtub or watch terrible rom-coms. Do not sleep, do not dream, do not envision zombies at the front gate, do not think about the apocalypse. Isolation poem number 13. It takes me three attempts to type isolation, isolation, isolation. Today my body aches like I was flung out of a speeding car, fingers stiff, hunched over a desk answering email, eyes crossed from peering at a screen. I am ready to welcome the riders of the apocalypse. Pandemic touches stranger put his fingers in my mouth, lick the fruit in a grocery store. The bomb in my grandparents' time was everything and they were correct about the terror. I realize it is everywhere filling the fresh air. Science fiction isn't what if, but what is. I am ready to go outside now. Face the face, face the head. There's power. Oh, I hear people coming. I'm going to have to stop this for a second. Okay, so I think some uh, hikers are either about to roll Emily for her iPad or uh, there's some sort of uh, axe murderer heading her way. We'll check back in with her in a second but uh, while, while we're waiting for Emily uh, Lindsay Zervogel uh, is uh, in the new issue she's in a, a lovely photo spread by Thomas Blanchard she uh, is offering some uh, picnic tips and she's in her backyard right now and said that she would uh, she just wanted to check in quickly and say hi and uh, give us a picnic tip from her backyard hi Lindsay thanks so much Conan I wish I was with you on the jet fuel patio but alas I'm in my backyard uh, where I'd spend a lot of time picnicking this summer um, so a few tips in case you are picnicking, which you all should. These are perfect places to bake. You can bake a little pie, a little crumble, something in there. Of course, I didn't want to turn my oven on, so I just have a peach that is delicious, but highly recommend. Um, I also like to bring my gin in a mason jar. 
pop the lid on, some ice, very key. Cold drink on a hot day, so delicious. And just add that in. Add some gin. I'm, the gin's already in there. Add some tonic. Thanks, Lindsay. You can get more of Lindsay's picnic tips in the new issue of Tattle Creek. Let's check back in with Emily and see if she's okay. I think she's there now. One of the hazards of trying to record poetry um, on a trail is other people walking past. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm back now. Wasn't a bad place to break, though. We're moving on from isolation poems now. There's power. There's power in the nothing, the removal, generic, baseline, color of my skin, name of my degree. Can you hear the raven? <laughs> the imprecise colors we leave behind in our poems and stories, paint chosen for the walls of classrooms and offices, we refuse to let go. What is never mentioned? We all need to eat and sleep and shit and watch Netflix. Beige is my skin, red is my color. A blood on a gray floor. I turn pink with fever, vomit yellow once all the food is expelled. Ghosted students disappear. Sad and white and wispy. Yet I become so pale when doing my job well. A neutral force between walls where nothing is neutral. There's no room for my life. Illness, pain that causes me to close the office door and hide. I empower here, and when I invite the reader to look past the gray of the institution, there are many greens and greens and green hues for which I love to make up names, fir needles and sunshine, algae floating in a shady estuary, the label on peanut butter, infected pus. There are millions and millions of browns and blues. Power holds up these walls, this institution for learning, yet people live in tents in the lush woods outside my window. So many just surviving alone together. This is a poem about um, the time I was fortunate enough to go uh, take a poetry workshop from one of my favorite American writers, uh, the feminist Marge Piercy. It's called Learning from Marge. The woman whose words have been braided into my vita, whose words were braided into my mother's and grandmother's lives, hollers at me to shape my poems from air. Maybe I am the golem she wrote about always expecting rain, monstrous, lumbering through streets at night waiting for some hero to wipe away my life, wipe truth from my forehead. I lost turnover violence in my mind, only know how to craft poems from mud, tears, blood, excrement, barely trust my ability to create life, and if I ever stop putting words to my truth, I'm ended. In the woman's garden filled with joy, she shares her brotherless poems after reading mine. He looked like her, Slavic eyelids, dark hair, returned from the Korean War, changed, died young and tortured. I understand the ferocity of her words too well, what life might be like without a brother's crooked smile, mistakes, 
shining eyes, and just once when she speaks of him, it's in the present tense. That small accident stays with me long after I leave her and publish the collection she read. She's the only writer I've met who dealt with these issues in her poems, but I am the lucky one. My brother survived, which means I have somewhere to put the anger and love. This one's called My Mother's Hands. Smell a baby powder and garlic, coarse sandpaper that grind you down. Tear down walls, hold up roofs, make homes. Comfort for children, friends, husbands, lovers, allies. Set me straight when my journey forks. Prove she's always right, never tremble or apologize for rage. Don't compromise. Type online manifestos, sing petitions. I will not compute ironic humor about serious issues. Resolutely grip peace signs amidst a sea of riot police on horseback, slice through raw meat, boil spaghetti, pickle beets, bake cakes, beg for nothing after her marriage's end all three times, are never empty now that she works cash at a general store. Shovel, stack wood, scrub harder than ever, never reveal just how tired she actually is. The raven is listening to my poems. It's pretty funny. Oh, and ah, uh, a mosquito. This is the last one. It's called Witnesses. At suns sunset one spring evening, 18 crows gathered on the power lines outside my tiny nest at the top of a hill. Neighbors came to peer, snapped pictures of black birds bellowing from lungs the size of strawberries, highlighted by the blazing skyline and indigo sky. A fledgling had fallen prey to an eagle. We were made witnesses to the most intimate pain of a mated pair, surrounded by family, the local murder, cried each evening for weeks, returned to mourn, broke the silence of flowers blooming, trees waking up with translucent green leaves, days warming into summer. Still, they sang for the dead. Never forget, never forget, never. We loved you and love you always. I watched from inside as the golden glass of downtown Vancouver shimmered and the world burned. I thought uh, before I sign off that I would actually show you a panorama of what's behind me because it's just so beautiful. And I try to do this without falling off the boardwalk. It is so nice here. Okay. Thanks for asking me to read. Again, Conan, sorry about this uh, terrible um, camera skills, but um, it was my pleasure to share these poems with you. And um, yeah, I can't wait to hear the other readers. Bye. Thanks, Emily. We've got one more reader for you today, uh, six feet over this way. Uh, Chris Chambers is also a Tattle Creek veteran, also been with us since issue number one. Of course, needs no introduction. I'll introduce him anyway. He's Tattle Creek's most frequent contributor. Uh, he's author of uh, Thrillos and Desperos and the Lake Where No One Swims. And we're happy to have him here with us this evening because it's definitely evening. Chris Chambers. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Conan. It's great to, great to be uh, here with you, you all. Um, I'd like to read two new uh, poems. Uh, 
Um, takes the, the first one takes about four and a half minutes, so, so get comfortable. Uh, it's in three parts. It's called sapling. In another year of severe weather weirdness, a freak windstorm at the beginning of May looked to be threatening the courageously blooming magnolia sapling that was our front yard. I was extremely fond of this little tree, and the wind outside was punishing it. It was torture to watch. The skinny tree, no taller than me, bent over sideways, petals and blooms a shudder. It had started to bloom two days earlier, and it never looked better. We counted 27 light pink flowers. In some very measurable ways, this was the greatest day of its life. I had to pull down the front blind. There we go. Next morning was Saturday. Blue sky, cloudy, sunny, and all the world wind streaked. Out the front window, the magnolia stood as if nothing had happened the day before. It now had more than 27 flowers and looked like it hadn't lost a petal to the wind. It was having another of the greatest days of its life. Two. Out on a Sunday run, an ancient maple had come down in western Bellwoods Park. Yellow caution tape made it its own grim parkette, Maple Down Park. While running, ruminating on the encounter my wife and daughter had with a guy on his hands and knees, scouring the little parking pad, four spots almost beside our house. I'm looking for my Brillo, he tells them. And I think of Andy Warhol. Others Google Brillo and learn it's a vessel in which to burn rocks of crack cocaine. Next, they see he is between Motorcycle Mike's house and the community housing house, going about his business with a lighter until the newish matriarch of the bottom floor TCH tenancy appears on the stoop with a broom, yelling at him to stop and get the hell out. He resists, as my daughter tells me later, until Mike appears with a baseball bat, and then he shuffles down the street holding up his pants. That way, she says, pointing west toward the pink palace. Thinking about this, hacking up junk, hungover, outrunning, panting like a flat-nosed dog on an August afternoon, after finishing carrying two coffees, I pass a young woman rising from beneath a brown blanket in front of the safe injection site, Bathurst and Queen, and her productive cough was truly an inspiration. Around the corner, on the other side of the fence, right beside the Catholic schoolyard, is a skinny guy backing out of a pretty elaborate-looking tent setup. Imagine him making an appearance Monday morning with 25 seven-year-olds at recess as his audience. What's a Brillo, Daddy? And how exactly does a tree end up like that? Three. Our little magnolia is having the best day of its life for the fourth day in a row. Its pale pink and white petaled blossoms continue to reveal themselves one star at a time, now with a backdrop of bright green leaf buds coming like the cavalry to settle in for the heat and the inevitable procession of time. The roots of a magnolia are legendary and deft. They grow like lightning. Those roots are in fact enwrapping our little house's foundation, keeping us grounded when the freak winds howl.
I got one more here. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read you my COVID uh, poem, my uh, my early uh, early pandemic poem, um, just because uh, Conan frowns on it. Uh, it's uh, shorter, um, and it's all about how the three uh, the three people in my household plus dog um, put on different plays each week. It seemed like at the beginning of uh, the the, cor- the 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 quarantine period. Curve flattening performance review. May 2020. All the adults with the same line. Can we drink yet? Not. Are we there yet? We are not. We are here. Like the map in the mall. You are here. Except the mall is this house. For the next a thousand weeks. About the fifth week, it became like a Tennessee Williams play in earnest. With iPhones and earbuds. Trapped, vicious family members hurling mean remarks. Some punctuated by a slamming door while a drunk guy leers out from the corner of the room. The mmm, chicken quarantino again line. It's tired at dinner. Tired again next day for lunch. Everything. Tired. Can't talk. This thing is done. Oh, he's on mute. Matt, you're on mute. Here's a link to my last remark. I'll type it into the chat. Somehow, staying pretty much indoors, week two bled into week three, by watching TV, and every punchline was Carol Baskin. Week four, so sick. Forgot to mention, I got uh, seriously sick for a few weeks in there. Not COVID-related, but uh, um, week four and week to week six were really ugly. Week four, so sick was like King Lear on Advil high-performance super gels. So sleeping through all the good speeches. So useless, awake. My fellow actors carried me like dragging a blind guy to the finish line. Week a hundred. Expletive deleted, if we make it, will be a never-ending Bergman film. Our three characters pill-popped, staring off into three separate domestic spaces for the whole week. It's the world's most boring week again. Somehow the dog, who uses the backyard as a toilet, was for weeks our connection to outdoor reality. The dog turned the set back into a house. Our house. And these props, this furniture... It's our room, with us sitting in it. And at this point in time, the dog was like, seriously? Like, is this it? This is what you do all day? You used to leave here every day, and it would break my heart. Every day. And then I'd curl up in the sun, feel good about us. I'm thinking, it's like the Bourne ultimatum for you out there, my man. All day Fury Road, punching out a guy in the elevator. And now... Now I see you mixing onion soup and sour cream and eating ruffles at 10 a.m. Thanks very much. That's a pretty good COVID poem, i got to say. <laughs> <laughs> That's not too bad. Thank you. Uh, that said, I want to thank uh, Chris and Andrew and uh, Emily and Sharon. Let's give them another round of applause, audience. Uh, Thanks to Lindsay Zervolga for checking in. Thanks to Derek. Feel free to jump in front of the camera if you want to show your face off. No, he's saying no. Uh, thanks to uh, Brian and David for putting this together. Thanks to Richard Underhill for the theme music. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, the other thing we're not doing tonight is selling magazines because these guys all get one for free. So uh, we'll put an email up at the end if you want to order one. It's a giant issue, uh, which is going to look great on the newsstand. <laughs> Um, thanks also to uh, Johnny and the Jet Fuel for having us here today. If you're in Toronto, the Jet Fuel is open uh, for takeout and for bean sales. 
just walk up to the the uh, front window. Uh, I expect we'll probably have to do this this way one or two more times, maybe. So uh, we'll see you in some form again in a few months. And uh, thank you for watching.